Welcome to Shit We Do For Love, the podcast where we delve deep into the gap between our human need for love and connection and our secret belief that we're not really good enough to be loved. This gap has us forever trapped in people-pleasing, procrastination and perfection and all sorts of nonsense as we try to measure up and be the person we've been told is worthy of love, all the while missing the truth about how amazing we already are. I'm your host, the Love Your Bloody Self coach, Wendy Windle. Fancy having boundaries that get back time for you? Then head to wendywindle.com to pick up your free guide, because never having time for ourselves is just some more shit we do for love. Hello, my love. Have you ever thought about why you do what you do in your life? You know, maybe as your job or how you spend your waking hours. Did these ideas come from you or are you perhaps living out somebody else's idea of what your life should look like? Are you living for other people in service of other people? Most of my initial consultations with clients begins with this wonderful, successful, accomplished woman, even if they never feel that way about themselves, sitting down in front of me to tell me that she feels like she's trapped in someone else's life, not really living 100% for herself, not really sure what a life like that would look like, and afraid that if she goes for it, she's going to have to blow up her current life. And she kind of likes a lot of her current life. So today in Shit We Do For Love, we're talking about this idea of not really living for yourself. It's like people pleasing as an extreme sport, and it can really creep in without us noticing. Today's fabulous guest is Dr. Cindy Childress. She's the expert ghostwriter. She is incredible at excavating and getting to the real truth of a story and either writing that story for you, or in my case, she's my book coach, helping writers to explore and reveal the truth and the true depth of our own stories. She also has the most delicious Texan drawl, so your ears are in for a treat. We get into people-pleasing as an extreme sport in this episode, and what happens when a good girl has no one left to make proud? The difficulty of accepting that our presence, just as we are, is enough in relationships writer's block. We get into so much in this episode. Oh, Dr. Cindy is far too polite to swear, but you know I'm probably about to use some language. And also, I don't mean to offend you. We discuss some stuff that is a little bit heavy for small people's ears. So as usual, grown-ups only, please. Dr. Cindy, welcome to Shit We Do For Love. I am so excited to have you on here. And it's a weird thing to say. I'm so excited because when we talked about what we could talk about on this podcast, the story you sent me resonated with me so deeply into my core, so deep down to my bones that I actually had to sit and have a a cry for myself, for you and for every woman who has ever felt that we've had to live up to somebody else's expectations or felt Mm -hmm. that we had to shape our lives in any kind of way to live up to getting validation from somebody else. That's the core of the story that you sent me, which I'm totally going to have you share in a sec, but it was so relatable and so digestible that I was like, yes, please come on the podcast and share this story, Cindy, because 
even if someone hasn't had exactly the same experience as you, the way that you shared this story made me go, this is every woman's story in some way. So let's just let the lovely listeners in. What happened when I reached out to you and said, Cindy, I know I want to have you on the podcast because you're so amazing, but what actually will we talk about? Tell everyone the story you shared with me. Yes. So it all started with when I was a master's student and I took a literary theory class. And when we did psychoanalysis, which is Dr. Elizabeth Hirsch teaching this class. Hello, Dr. Hirsch, um, mm-hmm. University of South Florida. And one thing she said um, in the psychoanalysis class was everything you do is for a reason besides the surface reason. And then she said, let's play a game. Why are all of you getting these advanced degrees in mostly literary studies? Um, and it was all master's and PhD students. And, you know, we went around the room and everybody said, you know, because I love teaching, because I love um, research, because I love literature and, you know, I love reading. And then, you know, everybody gives their reason. And then she says, um, okay, well, for everybody that loves um, reading, why not be a librarian? <laughs> and if you love teaching, why do you need to teach at college? Why not be a high school teacher? Save your money on these <laughs> student loans. Um, she was like, for everybody that loves research, why don't you just go to a library? Why don't you just, you know, why isn't this a passion project? Why do you feel that this needs to be your life's mission? And, you know, so she yeah, asked so us, why are you spending <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> to get a doctor, yes. right? When there's easier ways to read your life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what I realized as she continued asking us why that day was actually when you peeled it all back. So her point was there's something that drives people to get these advanced degrees besides just the professions you can have and maybe what you can do with them. There's some underlying thing because plenty of people without degrees do almost everything people with degrees do, maybe with the exception of teaching at a university, Um, but you can still get um, an honorary degree. So, you know, that's still not ruled out entirely. So, Um, What I came to realize was the main reason that I was getting then my master's degree was because my dad particularly really wanted me to. Um, And I'd never thought of not getting a master's degree because, you know, that was he wanted me to have something beyond the bachelor's. And when I finished that master's, um, because I already had accrued student loan debt from that, my um i thought the smartest thing would have been to take a teaching job at probably a two-year college or maybe um a lecturer position at a four-year college and pay off those student loans and then pursue the phd which i did intend to do um and it was actually the reason i did not do that was my dad's advice not to stop but to keep going and that was i found that really strange because he was someone who always prided himself for not being in debt and not having credit card debt, not, you know, so I thought he would have been proud of me to avoid, to try to be responsible with my debt. It really blew my mind, but it made me think, well, if he thinks it's more important for me to finish my PhD than to be fiscally responsible, then I guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is what I need to do. So 
just for him because he felt so strongly that I should continue and not stop until I got my PhD. I proceeded on to my PhD program um, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette in creative writing, um, which was it was um, it's a generalist degree in English with a creative writing dissertation. So the thing is, though, right as I was um, the summer before I was going to take my comprehensive exams, Let's my see, dad pause you right there. But it's just so sure. we can make sure that people listening have got this picture. So you've already got your bachelor's degree. So you're what around twenty two. Um, yes, I was a baby. So I started the master's at 21. So yeah, oh, you, you were a fast studier. You were fast <laughs> through school. So you're 21. So you're, you're a grown adult. In other words, is what I'm trying to say. You're a, you're a grown yes. woman with your own mind and your own mind is telling you, I've got my bachelor's. I don't want to get into more debt before I paid down some of this debt. So I'm going to go and teach, enjoy myself for a couple of years, pay this debt down. I do intend to go and get my PhD and continue my studies, but later on, on my time. And your dad says, no, don't stop. Keep going. Yes. And there's one person in your life, and of course it's your dad, and as a daddy's girl, yes. I know how important <laughs> my voice can be, says, no, Cindy, keep going. And as you said, just for him, you mm-hmm. stop going. And what yes. Yes. So right as I was, um, so the summer before I was going to take my comprehensive exams, which is in the uh, U.S. PhD program model, you sit for four written comprehensive exams um, over two days. It's very um, intense, followed by um, completing your dissertation and then um, some more steps to finishing. But this is like you can't do your dissertation without passing your comprehensive exams. And so um, as I'm starting to study for those in the beginning of the summer, I get a phone call one night from my mom saying that my dad has had a heart attack. And actually, he had already passed at that point, but she was so hysterical and I was so caught off guard. I didn't even realize he was gone until two hours later when I was trying to arrange flights to come in and um when I called back and they were like well you don't need to be in a hurry and I'm like why wouldn't I need to be in a hurry and (laughs) you know and they were like he's already gone and this if we hadn't even he hadn't even been sick except pneumonia like a month and a half before so this was a huge surprise um putting it mildly and this also though i mean he was the person that i was doing this for um you know to make him happy he loved it when i got my straight a's which always happened and you know it um like i was performing to make him proud of me and then there i was trying to study for comprehensive exams when there was no one to perform for to be proud of me. Um, And so I didn't take them that fall. The intention was study during the summer, take them in the fall. Um, I didn't take them in the fall. I didn't have the confidence. I couldn't even concentrate. And then I did sit for the exams in the spring and I passed, (laughs) but it just took this. I, I was fighting it every step of the way because I was like, I just felt 
aimless. Um, and then you can, it's common to finish the dissertation in one to two years after the comprehensive exams. I should have finished the first year after, but honestly, the first year after, I did barely any work on it. I just felt so aimless. And then when I came to, so I got an extension on my graduate assistantship to have a fifth year and several of my peers did too. That wasn't terribly uncommon, as I said, but still I should have finished it in the one year. Plenty of my peers did that too. And in that second year, I finally just got myself in gear because I'm like, you know, you've taken all this debt, you put all this time and energy into this. Let's get it over the finish line. And kind of pause here for a second, just again, just to really underscore some of the, because what you're saying is so deep and you're doing such a good job of keeping this concise. <laughs> I just want to underline the point there that you're there about to sit these hugely important exams when the news comes in that your father has passed. And I'm so sorry for that early and such sudden loss for you, Cindy. But then what you said about, I was doing this in order to make him proud. And suddenly there was nobody to make proud. That is the bit that punches me in the stomach about your story. That realization at such a young age that you were doing all of this just to make someone else proud. And then what you're talking about now is the fallout of that, right? When he's gone, what is the point? And I think a lot of people experience that. You know, I stayed in school until I was 27. And I certainly experienced that just from leaving school and just from not having mentors around me anymore, realizing mm -hmm. that I have been studying, staying in school within this system where there's always someone to do the work for. There's always a director that I want to impress. There's always a professor that gives me great feedback and that feels good, which kind of gives you a little bit extra motivation, right? And when that's gone, that feeling of aimlessness. And like you said, what's the point? What is the point? And then comes the lack of motivation. So I'm really interested in what you're about to say next. How did you turn that around for yourself and get yourself motivated? Yeah. Um, well, one thing was I was genuinely interested and believed in the mission of my dissertation, which was um, all about uh, female, how women experience depression and also can recuperate from it as, um, you know, exemplified in pieces of literature that matched up with Julia Kristeva's um, theory of the abject, which she's a post-structuralist psychoanalytic feminist. Um, and it was really, uh, that was really interesting to me. Um, and, um, and I thought it was important. And it was also healing for me because the very work I was doing, which this is the benefit of a creative dissertation. So I do all this research that's all, you know, written in third person about the stuff. But then there was also a creative element, which was my own poetry, which was, you know, exploring amongst other things um, exactly what we're talking about. And then um, my dad's father had um, also... Uh, killed himself um 
And this made me feel that the work was even more important. Um, that happened after my father passed away, um, incidentally. And I felt like there was like it was necessary um, because I think art creating creating art um, can save us. In fact, I would say that is what had um, saved me um, out of this incredibly um, sad situation. And the day that I graduated was one of the saddest days of my life because I'm there at the ceremony. I've got my cap and gown and plenty of people are crying. I was not the only one with the waterworks. That wasn't unusual, but <laughs> I just, I also felt angry because I'm like, here I am at this stupid ceremony and I'm going to walk across this stage and the person that I wanted to be here is gone. He, he missed it. And then I also felt like I didn't do it fast enough for him to have seen it. And I know I'm about to cry and it's been years. And it's, I don't want to say ridiculous. I think it's just, that's how um, impactful it is. The other thing that also happened is because, as I said, I'd really set out on this life-changing experience for him and not for me, that also made it easy for me to just close the door on the whole thing. And what I did after I finished the PhD and I was Dr. Childress, instead of going to um, entry-level position at a university, which all of my peers did, um, I left America to go with my brand new husband overseas to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, um, to have an adventure as an expat wife. And even though when I made that choice, I didn't realize I'd have a dependent visa and it would be very difficult for me to be able to find work because I had found that there were plenty of English speaking colleges there. So it was reasonable to think I would have taught there. But even that notwithstanding, I think um, I did something I don't know very many people who would have done right as you finished university when you're at your very peak and I'd done everything, you know, I had published papers, I had presented papers, I'd done all the things, committee positions, you know, like it was all, I was the total package. And I just said, meh, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do something different. And that, but I think it's because I wasn't really bought into the whole thing that I just said, I'll do something different instead. I think what you're talking about here is so key to the understanding of our own psychology and why we often get ourselves into situations, I find, where we're not doing well or we lack motivation or we get into this like perfectionism thing and just feel that, oh, I have to, but I don't want to, but I hate myself now for not being able to. I'm so lazy. What's wrong with me? And at the core of it comes this thing that you're unpacking so beautifully is if it's not for you, ultimately, you're not going to want to do it. Because I do think there are times in life, right? Like while your dad was there to be pleased, there was the motivation. Mm -hmm. But picturing you in cap and gown and, you know, what a wonderful achievement, but it wasn't for you. And the person that it was for was not there to shine his light on you in person. And to have that realization of, what is this all about? 
And yet within that you're talking about, there were elements of it, the poetry, the creativity, the artistry of what you were able to do, that was important to you. And that yeah. and the motivation to help you finish. And I think it's so important for us to really be aware of, like you're saying, the motivations behind what we do. Sometimes there's a blanket motivation for approval, which, and if anyone listening to this, you know, and obviously heard the emotion in Cindy's voice. And I have an incredibly similar story as well, where I was, believe it or not, in the States doing a master's on a PhD track, going to get a doctorate in theater studies, which I did not care one jot about because it would please my dad. Mm. And you think, you know, why in my 20s am I doing this to myself? Because that programming from childhood, that mm -hmm. hardwired connection to be loved, to be supported and to be protected by those that are there to protect us is primal. It's so deep. It's so deep in our biology that it takes a lot of work and a lot of self-awareness to overcome it. So I love that you did, that you found that moment of, wait, the PhD so fast was not for me, but what is for me? The importance of the minutiae of the work of the actual mm -hmm. subject, of the poetry, of what I can say, of what I can study, and then what I can bring to the world afterwards. That's what becomes important. But I love too, there's this other lesson in, in here, listeners, for you, if you're listening, is when you discover it's not for you, walk away. Just yes. walk away. Because I know how incredible your life has been. I know how out of the ordinary for a PhD scholar, your life has been how you have not followed, you know, the railroad tracks that were set out for you. And I know I stood there too, and I looked at it and I was like, master's in theatre studies, PhD in theatre studies, teaching in a college. It was all laid out for me. And I too went, you know, this, this is not for me. This is not the life that I think I would be most happy in. And it does take guts to jump the rail. You know, and I know it because I've done it as well. That feeling of, oh, I'm really, there's no safety net, but here I go. You know, and there you end up in Kuala Lumpur <laughs> where you are now. But from having that realization that if it's not for you, if you weren't doing it for you, you can, without guilt, without recrimination, without having to beat yourself up, just say, I'm going to see what's over here. I'm going to see what's over here. And I love that for you, what's over here with Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> it was amazing. And, you know, as I sit here, I'm reminded of one more thing that was really important because um, at the end of that fourth year of school, which um, was uh, for me when I was not working on my dissertation, um, my very good friend, Shelly, that I'd gone through the four years of the program with um, was tragically killed in a car accident two weeks before she crossed the stage to get her PhD in English. And I was also motivated in memory of her. But the funny thing is she used to always say two things to me. She would say, I'm going to have a fabulous life. I'm going to be this famous professor and, you know, women's studies and changing the world. But she would also say, I'm going to marry a rich guy and he's going to take care of me. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. Um, and, you know, I think rich is an exaggeration for my husband, but 
it's funny that um so the two friends that were, we were closest Chantel and myself Chantel went on to live a version of Shelley's dream as the professor um living up to the expectations and I did I was the wild woman of Shelley's dream <laughs> I got the opportunity that she always talked about and I said yeah let's do it um and I always felt like as I entered into that road less traveled that I had Shelly there cheering me on. And that was a way to um, to bring meaning to doing what was different. Yeah, because like you said, just to paint the picture for it again, clearly is that you had you intended when you went to Kuala Lumpur to work, but that wasn't as easy as you imagined. So you found yourself in this really unexpected position of being taken care of by your husband which again, yes. in your case, I know that's kind of like, you know, well, that's been the norm since the 50s, like what? But you know, in your <laughs> case, that was really radical for you, right? Because there yeah. you are, this independent, educated woman with your own career track, your own, you know, passion to move forward and do mm-hmm. things in life. And yet what was right for you in that moment was saying, I'm actually going to surrender to just letting my husband take care of me. Yeah, I'm going to take sushi rolling lessons and <laughs> curry making <laughs> lessons and icky cabana flower arranging. And, you know, it was hard because I'd always felt like I was not enough and I was always performing for approval. And so there in Kuala Lumpur, I don't have the performance of the graduate program and A's and achievement. And I don't have the performance of doing well and work. And so the only thing I'm, I, contributing to the relationship is my presence and to uh, come to terms with that being enough of what was asked of me was um and this didn't come from him because he was grew up in a very traditional home where his mother never worked and his father always worked so for him it wasn't so unusual but for me to be okay and feel like I was enough was that was a whole we had to book another session for that I can imagine, yeah, for you to actually just relax into the role of being, as you say, my only, it's so funny to hear you say, my only contribution was my presence. And yet, well, isn't that all (laughs) any of us have to give? And yet Mm -hmm. we fool ourselves, right, in a way into thinking, you know, but I'll be accomplished and have letters after my name and have done this and that or, you know, or go another way and I'll be the most amazing homemaker ever and have, you know, sushi rolls (laughs) on the table at 5 p.m. every day. (laughs) When I'm sure your husband was so delighted and still is, even though your role has changed completely, for your Mm -hmm. contribution to your presence, right? Yes, it is. The only thing he asks of me is more of my attention. I mean, that's adorable. Yeah. And is, I think sometimes we forget that when people love us, they just want us, right? They just want our attention. They want our time. They want our focus. They want our support and our encouragement. And yet we're there. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be the best wife <laughs> in the world. <laughs> And what yes. way that comes across in our own heads, you know, I'll be a company, mm-hmm. I'll be a great dinner party host, I'll do this and that and the other, and really just, <laughs> just sit on the sofa and listen to your partner. Yes, a hundred percent. And it's so it's great to hear you talk about this as well. This 
angle of being, of discovering how much you were doing for approval. Mm-hmm. I struggled with this whole word, people pleasing, or people pleaser, this idea of it. I rejected it the moment I heard that there was such a thing as like, oh, that person's a people pleaser, they're people pleasing. Because in my mind, when you said people pleaser, I pictured the person who always sat at the back of the class and didn't put their hand up. The person who, you know, was quiet and I'm literally just going through my head, thinking of my attributes and then going to the opposite. So the person who always says the right thing, <laughs> never too loud. The person, you know, you know those women that have those gorgeous little demure laughs. I was not blessed with those. I have a witch's cackle. <laughs> those wonderful people who are able to blend in, basically. To me, that was what a people pleaser was. And somebody who would never rock the boat and always had the best manners and was able to just um, have discernment and say the right thing. Uh, basically, the opposite of me is what I thought people pleasing was. <laughs> when I first reached out to you, I was like, what is your story? What are we going to talk about? Because in my view of what I want to achieve for myself, you've reached it, your perfection. <laughs> you know, like, strong business award-winning entrepreneur you know you've got so much going on what what shit could you possibly ever have done for love that that you would regret now and when you came back saying people pleasing and doing things for approval I was floored and had to remind myself well Miss Wendell (laughs) Mrs. Wendell you (laughs) do stuff for approval all the time and I think that's something that People often don't think that if mm-hmm. you're, if you're a go-getter, if you're opinionated, if you can hold a room, mm-hmm. there's often this idea, well, you mustn't be people-pleasing. But the motivation is what we're talking about here, right? The yes. fuel behind behavior. Because I actually got approval by being little miss. <laughs> Look at me perform. <laughs> you were on stage. You were literally performing. <laughs> oh yeah. Love me, please. I will go all the way to drama school. <laughs> but I think sometimes strong, bold, opinionated women have trouble doing the work to just stop and say, wait, what is actually my motivation? Because people pleasing is a difficult label, it's a difficult hat to put on. But when we look as that wonderful exercise that you did in school pointed out, when we start to look at our motivation, like, you know, well, I say, I say I want to be, you know, for example, I want to be an entrepreneur because, you know, I just, I want to earn loads of money. And it's like, well, great. So the there's easier ways of earning money, you know. <laughs> Go and get a corporate oh, yes. job. There's way easier ways of earning money. So <laughs> what actually is it? Like, what is the drive? And you've touched on it already. There's this, there can be this need for approval. That can be part of the fuel. But if we find a piece of fuel in there that's actually about our passions, mm-hmm. about discovering these links between depression and art and how to get over it for you. That becomes the gold, right? How yeah, has yeah. that discovery informed you moving forward? So is, is that a passion that continued or did you feel that you were done with it after your PhD? 
If you are enjoying this episode with Cindy Childress, please keep listening because we are about to get into how writing changes the life of the author as much as the reader. What's the point of writing, even if it's only for yourself? And why Dr. Cindy isn't afraid of no AI? But also be sure to get on my mailing list over at wendywindle.com. Sign up for my free guide to getting boundaries and I'll add you to my love letters list and remind you when we have a new episode. Then next next episode is a solo one where I'll go even deeper into this problem of living someone else's story. If you suspect you're not living your own life, make sure you have a listen. Now, back to this chat and find out why you should run from anyone who promises that they can fix you in six weeks or less. Spoiler alert, if anyone ever works with me as a ghostwriter or takes my online courses, (laughs) which I have a few. Um, you're going to notice that everything I do is trauma therapy informed. And if you are not aware of what that is, you won't pick it up, but you'll just notice that there's something about the way I teach and the way I guide writers to write that just feels not um, traumatic, that feels freeing. That may be all you feel. Um, if you know a lot about um, trauma theory and trauma recovery. You're going to see it everywhere in everything I do. Um, I'm helping a client right now. Um, So I have this thing that I say, which is um, a book that changes the reader's life, changes the writer's life first. And the thing that I know from my own studies is almost every human, even if you've done a lot of work on yourself, as I have done, we still have things to excavate. And a lot of times the place we find to excavate that work is in stories that we often tell ourselves and the stories we often tell others about ourselves. And when you peel back the layers of that story, there's always something that there's a memory or a feeling that is still buried there that is begging you to bring it to the surface. And when you do, you find a new layer of meaning for yourself. And you've also opened a new layer of meaning for the reader. And this is why I'm not concerned about chat GPD or whatever you call it um, for my business whatsoever, that AI thing. AI can't even touch what I'm talking about because it's it's ineffable until you discover it inside yourself. Um, and this client is a 78-year-old psychiatrist. So you would think if anyone, he would have completed his excavation. But, you know, what we've still found is there are little things that I notice in his, the way he talks about himself that are, and, and we, we hit a big one the other day because I said to him, there's something about this story that doesn't add up. And then he said, well, okay, it's based on myself and here's what happened. And then I said, oh, well, that's going to make a much better story for the reader than what we have right now, which feels, you know, like it's not a full expression of the truth that is here. And like, how the heck would I know something like that unless I'm a magical um, fairy godmother? Well, I do call myself a fairy godmother, but what's magical is the theory that underpins my dissertation that guides me to um, look for these moments and find them and then do the work to um, excavate them. Mm, That excavation. And you're so right. It never ends. I think there's there's a bit of a lie in what I call um, social media quick fix 
coaching, you know, which mm-hmm. I, again, this could be, I could do 10 pods on this about run away from it. Anyone who says they can fix you in six weeks, that's a lie. Don't give them your money. <laughs> Anyone who says they can fix you in six months or six years, it's a lie. Don't give them your money because forever excavating mm-hmm. and mining. And I love what you just said about discovering the real core truth inside our own stories. And Mm -hmm. what your client was doing was that approval seeking mechanism that we all have, right? Of, well, here's the truth over here, but over here, away from the truth, is a version of the truth that I think is acceptable and I Mm -hmm. think is safe to put into the world. Yes. And And having worked with you and done one of your amazing courses, Crank Out Your Book, what I discovered from working with you is that you are an excavator of the truth and always guide your clients to actually leave that fabricated pretty version mm-hmm. on the shelf yeah. because mm-hmm. actually it doesn't help the reader and it mm-hmm. doesn't help the author. Because if all I'm going to allow myself to put into the world is the self-edited, you know, I think this is what the world wants from me. I think this is polished enough to go out. Then I never get to be real. And the Mm -hmm. reader who is craving to Mm -hmm. absorb something and feel something and know me so that they can know themselves too and see my pain so that they can see their own pain too and see my goofy idiocy so they can (laughs) be comfortable with their own side of that too is denied Mm -hmm. experience, right? Yes, yes, that's sanitized and, you know, you just, um, you ruin it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, oh, that's so concise and so true. We ruin what we offer the world by trying to make it approval ready, right? Like, And that's because you're not being, you're not being honest to your truth as you experienced it and you know it at your core when when we when we look at that and then we say, I can't put that here, it's I can't put all of it, and we don't trust it, then we're also not trusting the reader, we're not trusting our own truth, our own story. And you know, that'll be reflected in the writing, it'll be reflected in how it's received, it'll be reflected in the weird energy you feel when you put it out there and try to promote it and talk about it. Um, and I like to avoid all that. <laughs> And I love that your formula for avoiding it all is to just show up and tell the truth. Yes. <laughs> so just get it all out. And, and just for the record, I'm not telling people to write the most painful thing that ever happened to you and post it tomorrow. In fact, you can write the most painful thing that ever happened to you and never publish it. Mm. But the thing is, whatever true, whatever stories you're going to tell, they need to be excavated to the fullest extent of the truth as you have it to offer. And for stories that you're not ready to do that, that story is not for today. Instead of a sanitized version, what stories are you ready to tell? And let's tell those. Excavate those. Yes, let's excavate what you're ready to tell. And I think that's actually where your trauma-informed work is coming through. Because I think, again, what I see a lot in, in social media or in blogging is that people do, they feel that they need to, I'm going to share my guts to the lions, basically. Not realizing that once that's out there, you can't control who reads that or what, how that comes back. 
you know i even realized for me there was a point when writing my first draft with you of my book there was a story that i included in there that i was ready to share with you ready to share with my members in the group that we've in this group writing course that we did together and when i sat and reread that draft i'm comfortable with the story i'm comfortable of the facts of what happened but i realized i'm not ready for this for myself to be associated with the facts of this story carte blanche you know just opens the world everyone can associate me with this thing because it's controversial i know the listeners now are like what is hold back a bit of ourselves you know because it's like it's something controversial in my past that isn't a reflection of me as a whole person but is but could be and i'm not ready to be seen in solely that light and maybe one day i will and then i'll publish that book (laughs) right now for my own safety it was like you know i can just remove one sentence and Mm -hmm. the story's still there but there's one fact that gets to be sacredly mine sacred in my sacred space you know in my sacred space with you my book coach who i can share that with and the other members of the group and i think there too there's a lesson in self-love there too right is Mm -hmm. that in this wanting approval we can swing all one way or the other in well I don't want to only produce the sanitized version because that's not fair on anyone especially not me I'm not doing the work but you also there's no necessity for you to literally let people inside your soul and inside every single memory and event of your life in order to teach and give (laughs) to the world Absolutely. And I'll give a quick anecdote in the broadest terms I can, because this is really her story to tell. But there's another student in a later iteration of the course who gave me a piece of writing. And there was um, it just seemed a bit self-flagellating. There was something that she had ended that she blamed herself for exclusively. And it just seemed like she was just making herself out to be such a bad guy. And all I said was, okay, I noticed that you're really making yourself out to be a bad guy, like a lot. And well, A is for repetition. The reader doesn't need so much of this, but I was like, I wonder if that's really true. Because when I think about situations like this, it's not usually where one person is such a bad guy exclusively. And so, and all I said is just, just think about that. And then this opened up um, a world of reflection Um, that even led her to take some legal action. But then she came back to me and she was like, do I need to completely rewrite everything? And I said, actually, no. If you look here with what you've submitted, with with what you're saying that matters to the reader for what this book is about, all that matters is how you felt after you ended that Mm -hmm. and what you did to heal those feelings because you're helping readers who feel the way you felt in that moment, heal their feelings. So they don't need to know why you ended it at all. If you don't want to say that, and it's none of their business, you can present everything in such a way that doesn't even touch on that. And she was like, Oh, thank you. And that, um, everybody, you're, you don't owe people a story that you are not comfortable to share. That's, that's the other part of this. Yeah, I think that's something that's so 
important to talk about in this world of you know TikTok and reels and social media is that you know you you we don't owe everyone on the planet all of us right like in some way and, and not to be fake but it's just that not everything that happens in my life needs to show up on social media or in books yes. or in you know because I love it's at the end of the day it's not it's none of your business you know and yet what we're talking about here is also the antithesis of mm-hmm. the sort of opposite of that which becomes then this the sanitized often on social media nothing but good vibes version of life that does get yes. out which doesn't help anyone either it's it's finding no. nuance in between bits isn't it of like I'm not yes. gonna I'm not human because that's actually quite damaging in the world right now but I'm also yes. not gonna completely throw my insides outside I get to choose what is my business to share mm-hmm. I get to choose what I'm ready and comfortable with talking about and in a way this too is pointing back to what we spoke about before you came on the podcast of you said I've come to a place where I seek my own approval first, mm-hmm. which just just makes me melt inside in the best <laughs> of ways to hear you say that. What does that feel like to you, Cindy? Do you have a practice around it? Or how do you keep yourself aligned to seeking your own approval first? Yeah, well, I've done some self-excavation. Mm-hmm. And um, one piece of self-work I did um, took a particularly traumatic memory. And um, this was, uh, we haven't even gone here, which is just to say, people, there can be a lot of things that you don't talk about. That doesn't mean they're not there. It's not necessary to say what's important, but I have a long eating disorder, disorder recovery story. But it all started with one thing that happened when I was five years old. And I did, um, uh, it's called EMDR which is um, a therapeutic practice where you hold on to these vibrating paddles. It's not painful at all, but they vibrate to hold you present as you relive a traumatic memory with the theory being there is information and memory in that memory that you have not embodied and processed. So by bringing it to the surface and embodying it as you relive it, you can move on from it. Well, what happened for me Um, And this probably, you know, we do some of that in my work. So you can see how like totally synced up I was to try this. But I recovered the memory of myself before the traumatic event when I was completely whole and absolutely confident and over the moon in love with myself. I thought I was the best thing that ever happened, which is not to say that I felt better than anyone else, but I felt like my own shooting star. So who cared? And I was able to tap into her. And so I put her in charge quite often. And I'm like, what does she want to do? You know, um, and what will make her happy? And that leads me to do really interesting things like writing a memoir about being a cat foster mom instead of maybe something that might make more sense on the surface, like writing a book about how to write a book. So, you know, <laughs> she, she, she shows up in my business. She shows up in my personal life, um, how much time I spend um, in my beautiful bathtub. Um, <laughs> we're here together. <laughs> this is so talking my language right now, Cindy. So you tapped into that purity of yourself around four or five years of age. 
before you can remember any trauma happening significantly, we all get traumatized as children as part of being a human. But before you remember any significant traumatizing event of this, I am my own shooting star. I love that. As I'm going to say an aspiring writer, Cindy, I feel I have an answer to this question, but I'm really interested in your answer to this question. Do you feel that there is a connection between writer's block, writer's block, and people pleasing? Yes. Where I've seen that show up in my clients and students is two places. So number one, they may be um, concerned with what their mentors would say or what their peers in their um, profession would say. In fact, I've got one client who has even gone to the extent of being worried about what her husband's peers would think, which is really a step beyond. Um, but it's it, this is very as real for her as you know, a concern about um, my electricity's gone off and I need to do something about it. That is how real that concern is. Um, and the other place I've seen it come up is family members. When you're going to write about someone in your story and you're not sure how they're going to feel about it. Um, and there again is like, do I just make them happy and not mention what happened <laughs> or tell it exactly the way it did, or do I tell it the way it happened? Um, and for those peers and mentors, what I find is it becomes a matter of, well, is this book for them? Is their approval even important or helpful for the purpose you have and your mission in sharing what's inside the book? And if you're not writing it for that audience, then they can just all stuff their opinions. I mean, it'll be great if they do, support your book, they can write bylines for you and all those nice things. But if they're not, if that's not who your book's for, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how that can affect us, isn't it? Those peers and mentors, because like I said earlier, we're hardwired to seek the approval of the people who protect us because that's how we survive as children. You know, we unfortunately are not cats. We don't come in kind of ready to go, you know, it takes a, you know, a good 18 years, usually, before we're sort of ready yes. to venture into the world. <laughs> we need for a cat, yes. <laughs> we need those people to care for us. So mm -hmm. the signals that they give us on what makes us lovable, what makes us acceptable, are mm -hmm. real. They are so real. You know, my high school, senior school, English teacher who has not looked at a piece of my work since I was 16 recently mm -hmm. tracked me down and got in touch and I was delighted to hear from him because it was you know we had been budding friends really while, while I was a student it was one of those sort of like you know God, if, if you were 10 years younger and you're 10 years old we'd be such good friends you know but yeah, yeah. My teacher, <laughs> and I'm a child so you know <laughs> let's circle back to this when we're grown up and he did, which was so beautiful. He wrote me an email and I wrote him an email back. And Cindy, I deleted and redrafted the email three times before I had to say to myself, um, Wendy, you're 47 years old. <laughs> You've arrived. <laughs> no longer 16. He is not going to grade your work. Just write how you write. 
today. (laughs) (laughs) All those years later, you know, 30 years later, still looking to see, will Mr. Top, hi, Mr. Top, will Mr. Top give me an A? Or will he send this back covered in red ink? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I understand. Um, I'm not one of those English majors who always made A's. In college, I broke the code finally, and I did become a straight A student. But when I was in high school and middle school and I first started these writing assignments, um, I mostly made C's. Um, And that's partly because they just wanted me to freaking do what I was asked to do. And I wanted to write something <laughs> Pulitzer Prize worthy and epic. And I just didn't know enough to um, know how to do that. And I wasn't interested in doing the assignment. I mean, that's the truth. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I finally just got enough information to empower me to do the thing I really wanted to do, which I won't necessarily say is Pulitzer worthy, but I would say, why shouldn't we be aiming there? Um, But, um, you know, things turned around for me. So sometimes there's just some missing information. And then once it clicks, everything changes. And then you can also let go of all that stuff where you felt like you weren't enough and you don't know why, you you know, like all that baggage of all that crap, you know, Um, just poof. Just poof gone. I love that. When you actually start just listening to that five-year-old, doing things, finding the core of what it is that you want to do and going for that. And I have to say, just again, to paint the picture of Cindy for you, dear listener, Cindy is an incredibly successful entrepreneur, writer, ghostwriter, book coach, and excavator of stories. She is incredibly successful at what she's done. And, And I want you to hear this got C's at college <laughs> and didn't do it <laughs> yes. and has tripped up and failed and done things her own way and stopped trying to be a good girl and look where she ended up. So if you're looking for proof that <laughs> you can release seeking approval and still end out on top, then Dr. Cindy Childress is it. Now, Cindy, one last question that I ask everyone who comes on. Could you tell me some shit you used to do for love, or maybe it's all sometimes do, that you refuse to do anymore? What shit do you do for love that has to stop or has stopped? Well, just last weekend, um, so for some, like my husband does his own laundry and I do my own laundry. But for some reason, when it came to the bath towels, I would always take his bath towel and the um, the uh, hand towel on his side, and I would wash it with the rest of my towels <laughs> and washcloths. Um, and uh, I just did it. Um, it was a nice thing. It wasn't a lot of extra work for me. But sometimes I put my denim jeans in that load and I don't have enough room for his towels. And I noticed that on the weeks when I didn't have room for his towels, they were getting stinky. And so (laughs) instead of doing what a good girl might have done and just 
add an extra load next time because I know he's not going to do it. Instead, I just had a very funny conversation with him where I said, you know how a lot of times I just replace your towel with a clean towel and like you don't have to worry about it. And he was like, yeah. And I said, well, you know, sometimes I don't do that because I didn't have room in my load. And when that happens, you should do it yourself. And he was like, oh, yeah. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. The towel fairy has gone on strike in the children's household. (laughs) Sometimes you're going to get lucky, but sometimes you're not. (laughs) (laughs) You can't depend on the towel fairy. That's the story here. And I love, Cindy, that you just said, because this is what I'm finding. The shit we do for love is so often it's in the small things. It's in that little gesture of kindness, which is so lovely. But sometimes was ending up with you having to have your lovely long soaps in a stinky bathroom next to a smelly towel. So (laughs) (laughs) no more. We're not doing that shit for love anymore. I love it. That's such a great thing to share. Thank you. Oh, Cindy has been a joy. I knew it would be. I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours, especially if we get on some cat subject in much depth. Thank you so much for being here on Shit We Do For Love. You have given us so much to unpack and think about. I think I'm going to have to listen to this episode about five times just to mine the depth of when you talk, these little nuggets of wisdom and gorgeousness that really could be printed out and placed around the house of motivational posters to pop out. (laughs) Listeners, I encourage you to listen to this one several times ring all the goodness out of Dr. Cindy that you can because she really is a gem. Cindy, thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. There is so much to love about Dr. Cindy Childress, isn't there? But just to recap, we talked about that aimlessness and that lack of motivation we feel if we've been doing something to make someone else proud or happy or to win their approval. (laughs) You're going to lose that game in the long run, ladies. Allowing ourselves to just be enough, just ourselves, being present in a relationship and allowing that to just be enough and the courage that that weirdly takes and that people want our true authentic selves. But that doesn't mean social media, that the whole world gets to have us for free all of the time. And also right at the end there, that power of connecting to your own shooting star. And of course, Dr. Cindy gave us an excellent example of setting a boundary there with the laundry situation in her house. If you need help setting boundaries, you know this, dear listener, by now, go to wendywindle.com and download my free guide, how to create boundaries that get back time for you. If you are a writer, or you just fancy having a go at writing a book, but you don't know how to get it out of your heart and into the world, I urge you to go and check out Cindy's courses. I took part in Crank Out Your Book in eight weeks, and I loved it. I loved having her support, and the support that she gives goes beyond just those eight weeks as well. She's got an incredible community of writers. She's the professor that you always dreamed you have that would be able to just draw the talent out of you. And if you don't have time to write your book, she's got you covered. She's an amazing, best-selling ghostwriter too. Go to cindychildress.com for all of her offerings and to find out more about that wonderful human. Till next time, I bloody love you.